0: Hi, I'm Paul Anacone, and you are listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 60 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm super excited to be speaking to Paul Anacone, the former coach of Pete Sampras, Roger Federer, Tim Henman, Sloane Stephens, and more. It's a really exciting episode and we learn so much about the greats. Before we kick off, I'd like to announce our new podcast sponsor, Slinger. Slinger make the awesome Slinger bag, which is all the rage lately. It's a portable ball machine, which you can easily transport between the courts, and home and has a five-hour battery life. I've used it personally and love it. And I've seen many pros posting about it on their social accounts with great feedback. We have a short video about it, which you can check out over at our Instagram account, Functional Tennis. It's really exciting to work with Slinger and have them as the main sponsor of the Functional Tennis Podcast. And if you'd like to know more about the Slinger bag, head over to slingerbag.com. If you do have any friends who are fans of Federer or Sampras, you got to afford this podcast episode onto them. Okay, let's get to business with Paul. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the Functional Tennis Podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Fabio. Great to be here.
1: It's it's unbelievable to have you on here. Such a, a legend of the tennis world. And yeah, it's a real pleasure. So thanks a lot. How about we start off, first of all, with just talking about your day job right now. You're working with Taylor Fritz at the moment.
0: Well, I'm lucky. I've got a few different day jobs. (laughs) But uh, in this uh, crazy environment we're living in, it's good to have a few different ones, I think. But yeah, I I coach Taylor Fritz. David Nankin coaches him as well with me. David works for the USTA. Uh, He's been working with Taylor for five years now. Uh, David is a terrific coach and has been really instrumental in helping Taylor get into the top 25 in the world and uh, we joined ranks three years ago and uh, we've been working in concert since then it's been a it's been a great run I'm really enjoying it Um, I also do commentary for the tennis channel so uh, I get to spend a lot of time doing what I love which is watching tennis and seeing the best tennis players try to compete against each other and the most pressure packed arenas in the world. So for me, that's, that's really a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I I really enjoy it. And I also do a little bit of work for Craig Tiley, who's the chief executive for tennis Australia, do some consulting stuff for him. So uh, that keeps me busy. That keeps me busy. It keeps me out of trouble, Fabio.
1: That's really important to keep you out of trouble, I'm sure. Absolutely. We had Craig on here about 10 episodes ago. Great chat with him, and he gave us some great insights into how he ended up at the Australian Open, How he and the fun he has there running it. So really good guy. So how's how's things going with Taylor right now? Are you going to be going to the US Open?
0: I'm not, actually. um, We've uh, spent a lot. He's probably sick of me by now anyway. (laughs) We've spent a lot of time together in the last kind of... uh, let's see, April, May, June, July, last four months, we've uh, seen a lot of each other and I'm sure he's uh, happy to have a little break from me. So he's going to the U S open, uh, with David Nankin. Uh, they're both there already. And, uh, Wolf, uh, Wolfgang Oswald is his physio. Who's, uh, absolutely priceless. Just amazing physio. Does such a great job, uh, working with Taylor's body, um, keeping him fit. Um, Taylor, strength and conditioning coach, um, Moila, uh Caesar lives out here in Los Angeles, and 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 uh, Caesar's here right now with me. We're staying home, but um, Nanks is there with Wolf, and uh, Taylor is feeling fit and had a couple of good days of practice already, so he's feeling good.
1: So you had a good three or four months to work work on his game, and we're expecting big things. So are we?
0: I think you know. I think the thing is for this is where the pandemic has been kind of interesting for different players, right? The older players take less time, I think, to prepare and actually try to improve. They need this time. The older players kind of get refreshed and get their body healthy and get uh, reinvigorated. The younger players, I think it's a great opportunity to try to get better. Um, They don't ever get a time where they have four or five months where they can really work on stuff. So we tried to have the emphasis with Taylor uh, mostly on the strength and conditioning stuff, which he's worked pretty hard at the last couple months. And then as it got closer to game time, to playing matches, we started focusing on some of the tennis areas where we want him uh, to work, You know, the transition area coming forward to the net, being a little bit less predictable with his second serve, um, just a few things like that. And and uh, he seems really good. He seems uh, healthy. He seems uh, very happy to be out on the court playing again. He did play team tennis for three weeks, which was, I think, really good for his mind, especially to be out competing, which he really enjoyed. Um, so, yeah, he's in a good place.
1: And did the team tennis also help with actual match fitness? Because it must be totally different to practicing all day to actually the intensity of matches, where it's up another level. Do you think that will make a big difference come the early rounds, the U S open?
0: I I think it helped him with pressure situations, having to play in pressure. I don't think it does anything for match fitness because the matches are so short. They play what they do is they play five game sets. You play one, five game set, no ad scoring, and then you can play singles, doubles, or mixed doubles. And they have men and women. So regardless the most you're going to be on the court probably is an hour and 20 minutes. If you play all three, I would think. So it's not so much the match fitness. It's more about what you do under pressure, which is good because you get to play no ad scoring. You have to serve down break points. You have to try to execute break points. So that to me, that was the biggest benefit. And also it gives you, if you're disciplined, it gives you the time to keep working on the fitness stuff, Around the tennis. You know, there's there's Jim there, uh, Wolfgang Oswald, Taylor's physio was there to run through the, the physical training stuff that Caesar would have sent him. So it was a good it was kind of a good dynamic. But the most important thing is it got him to compete. And and to me that's the biggest benefit.
1: I'd say these guys are just they're so competitive, the guys at the top of the game and many more players that they just it gets to a stage where it's boiling point. You just got to get out there and unleash the big serve.
0: Yeah, it's hard. You know, it's hard to sit around for this many months. And that's why initially when Taylor, when we started, he wasn't hitting every day. You know, we were hitting two, three times a week to keep it fresh. And Most of those hits were just about keeping your timing, keeping your rhythm and trying to have fun. You know, I didn't want it to get too boring and too monotonous. And then the other days, you know, he's hitting the gym pretty hard. To me, that was our focus, making sure the gym stuff um, was taken care of and that the tennis stuff, once we knew when the starting line was, which is about now, you know, starting next week at Cincinnati, um, we knew how to then kind of periodize and step up the practice and the structure of the practice. So it worked out pretty well for us and, and uh, Taylor did a nice job.
1: Uh, that's It's amazing. I say, I know the players who've been playing so long, they know exactly what makes them tick. You get the likes of Federer where he doesn't really have to play. He sort of goes a wall. I've heard you mention where on four week training block or preseason, he doesn't play for the first two weeks?
0: Yeah, he can. yeah, Rogers a, you know again, this is a very different animal when you play with the, when you're with the mature player who has had a ton of matches and their body and their fitness and their health is really the priority for the longevity. So for someone like Roger or when I was with Pete uh, Sampras or with Tim Henman towards the end of his career, you know, it's a, it takes a shorter period of time to be really zeroed in with laser-like focus to get the tennis going. The key is getting the body ramped up to get the tennis going. So with Roger and also Pete and Tim were like this as well. You know, the first thing is getting the physical foundation, and then you kind of bleed in the tennis. And then kind of the last 10 days, the focus is on tennis, and the less is on the physical stuff because the body and the fitness and the endurance is back.
1: It's crazy to hear that because obviously at the lower amateur recreational level, it's just totally the other way. It's like people panic if, you know, if they're not playing, they got to play loads. They got to put in the big session before the day, the day of matches. And it's just the pros just do it the other way around completely.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, and look, and everybody's a little different. Uh, some players need more time on the tennis court than others to feel comfortable but you have to, as a coach, that's to me one of the most exciting things is you have to figure out and manage what the player needs because everybody's a little bit different. And, and Roger's more of an artist. Sampras is more of an artist. Even Henman is more of an artist. So they start to feel the game pretty quickly and they start to feel pretty comfortable very early on in their training session. So it doesn't take long to get them going well.
1: Okay. And you reckon like more Nadal would be needs to hit a lot of balls a lot more often?
0: Yeah, it just depends. You know, I've got this this chart that I look to that I look on. It's called the the mechanic and the magician. And everybody's somewhere in that spectrum between mechanic and magician. And neither one of those is right or wrong. You just have to know what kind of player you are. Maybe somebody like Rafa Nadal is more of a mechanic. He likes to get a lot of repetition in. So he needs more repetition to feel comfortable with his tennis game. A guy like Federer is a magician and and he needs less to get geared up and and to get going. And it took me a long time to kind of figure this stuff out. And uh, to be honest with you, Fabio, here comes a shameless plug, but I I wrote about this in my book. Uh, I wrote a book a few years ago called Coaching for Life. And I think that that's one of the most important things is understanding what kind of a player, what kind of a person, what kind of an athlete you are to then structure how you should prepare and once you know yourself, it makes it much easier to get comfortable and confident very efficiently.
1: And I haven't, I haven't read your book yet, but I will add it to the, to the to read list. <laughs> what sort of player were you then when you played?
0: I was more of, I was more of a magician because I was just kind of a serve and volley or I came to the net. A lot of my game was about just feel. It was about really hitting big serves and volleying feel around the net. I wasn't a good ground stroke player. So it didn't take me long. I just had to make sure I was serving well. I had to make sure I was moving well at the net. It didn't take me long to feel comfortable with my skill set, but it actually, Fabio, took me a long time to understand this, and that's one of the things that I talk about often is I think players don't understand the kind of player that they are individually, and sometimes when you do that, your preparation is incorrect. You work on the wrong things. You work on it for uh, different different durations that don't hit your priorities, And it can be kind of counterproductive to what your skill set is. So you have to be very careful about that.
1: Is that up to the player themselves? Let's say a young, a promising 18, 19 year old. Is that up for the player to know or is it a lot of input from the coach to figure it out and guide them?
0: Well, if the player trusts the coach and they've got a good relationship and they've got good communication as the development goes through the player, when they go through the different stages, the coach kind of innately is getting the player to understand without even having to say you're a mechanic or you're a magician or you're this or you're that. They're getting the player to get programmed to understand what they need so that the player feels confident and comfortable in their preparation. So I think it's kind of an evolution uh, through the training process. And once they get to 18, 19, 20, they kind of know – Um, But by that stage, I really think, Fabio, by your late teens, the Mm. foundation is really set. The foundation is kind of set. And from kind of late teens to early 20s, uh, Taylor Fritz is 22 right now. And I think he's got about two more years uh, to really work on some significant things. And then at that stage, you start to know really who you are and how to prepare. You're not going to make huge technical or strategic changes you're going to make incremental adjustments. And so from 18 to 22 is still really important. But 18, 19, you kind of know as a player and as a coach that's coaching that player, what type of player that person is.
1: Okay, interesting. And tell me, you started coaching Pete when he'd won four Grand Slams and Roger'd won 16. So they were different parts. They're both really successful. And had they ended there, they would have been still unbelievable players. But what was different going into each player there?
0: They're very different people, you know, Fabio, and that's why I love tennis coaching. It is, you know, my philosophy about coaching an individual. The unique thing is the coach has to conform to a different player's mentality. In other words, everybody's different. Roger was pretty happy to chat about tennis. Pete wanted to have his information in a really short period of time. Tim Henman could talk about it for a long period of time. Um, They like to hear the delivery of the messages in a different way. So you kind of have to be creative with the content that you're giving them. You have to understand how the player operates best. And then you have to get across what you want to say the way they need to hear it. So to me, that's the challenge as a tennis coach. And and I've been very fortunate because I've had Uh, A number of very good uh, coaching mentors. And I've also had great players who were really receptive. And and if you have a great player who can hold a mirror up and understands themselves, the coach is going to learn as much from the player as the player does from the coach. So I learned a ton from Sampras, a ton from Henman, a ton from Roger, a ton from Sloan Stevens in nine months. Um and even now, Taylor Fritz a twenty learning i'm um, I'm relearning how to deal with a twenty two year old so it's very different, but the messaging has to be delivered in ways that the player will buy in.
1: A bit like a successful parent, really isn't it? Understand trying to understand the kid
0: exactly uh, luckily, I've got three kids, so I've, luckily I've been through that, so that helps.
1: <laughs> the player's obviously a bit older, so a bit more challenging I'm sure Taylor would be very headstrong.
0: Yes, Taylor's actually, to be quite honest, is probably more challenging to coach than Pete or Roger or Tim. It doesn't make him better to coach or worse to coach. He's just more challenging because he's probably more headstrong than any of those players. And in many ways, that's a huge asset for Taylor. That's why I love that part of him because I know that he will relentlessly compete Um, He will relentlessly believe in himself. Um, He's an unconditional competitor. He's an unconditional problem solver. But then there are times where you're trying to get a philosophy or a strategy across where he pushes back pretty significantly. That's a challenge. I mean, it's a good challenge, but it's a challenge as a coach because you have to spend time trying to get him to buy in. And where Roger and Pete and Tim Henman were very strong and really opinionated, they were actually a little easier to kind of get them to buy into stuff than Taylor. Um, But as a coach, I like that part of Taylor. I just – have to make sure we manage it the right way so that he's still open to learning and understanding new philosophies and strategies. So David Nankin and I spend a lot of time kind of communicating together to try to figure out the best way to get the messages across. That goes back to what I said about understanding different ways to deliver messages to players.
1: And do you think in Taylor's situation it's related to age at all? He's a bit younger?
0: I think so, right? You know, you think so, Fabio. But also you would think while you're younger, you would be more open-minded to people with experience. Um, I actually think that um, you know, player, I mean, how do you go and when I started with Roger, how do I go and convince a 16 time major champion to do something that he hasn't done before? Sure. Or to try to buy that's a that's a challenge. I mean, he's won so much that you better be pretty good about the information that you're delivering. And you better be pretty clear about how you're going to get your message across to them to get them to buy in. Whereas you would think a younger player would be like, wow, okay, I've got to learn this. I've got to learn that. But then the inexperience and maybe the immaturity, that's where it jumps in and they fight you a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But which makes it a good challenge for you though, which you enjoy.
0: Yeah. 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 There's nothing wrong with that at all. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Can you tell us the secret on how you convinced Federer in case I ever have to convince him to come on the show?
0: Actually, Roger was refreshingly open. He, you know, the first day that I was with him, I remember, you know, we, we had we had known each other for a while. We went out to a couple of dinners before we started. We had a lot of conversation. And then the first day we were on the court, I remember he was hitting and he was warming up and he looked turned to me and he said, okay, what do you want me to do? And I said, is it, is it that easy? What do I want? And then I'll just tell you and you'll do it. You know and, and he just laughed and said, well if I don't agree you better have some good information to convince me why but if you can tell me why then I'll give it a shot and so from that day forward he was very open so I would say uh, you know let's work on doing this because even if it doesn't work it opens up possibilities for this other thing or here's why it's going to work and here's who you use it against and you know so you have to explain the why behind it but if you do that he was incredibly uh, receptive
1: Why did Federer look to you in a coach? Was it your experience with Sampras, successful record there? He he was looking for another Wimbledon title.
0: Well, when we started together, you know, the goal was to get another major title and to try to get the ranking back to number one. That didn't mean forever, but that was kind of what the goal was. And so, you know, to me, I tucked that away in a box. I understand what we're trying to do. But then I look at his tennis and I go, "Okay, what's the best way for Roger to try to get better and to do better against, in particular, the best players in the world right now, the Rafa's, the Novak's, the Andy Murray's? What do we need to do? And then we go about the process of improving, being more efficient, being more impactful. And that will lead to the result. That's how I looked at it. And so that's how he looked at it as well. And that was what our goal was when we started in 2010. And then in 2012, he won Wimbledon and got back back to the number one ranking in the world, and uh, we were both ecstatic about that. So the goal was achieved. But I'm a big process guy, Fabio. I believe that you know you set across a good process, and if you're happy with the process and you work hard towards it, then the goals will be met or they won't be. But I'm I'm a more of an evaluator on the process. If you're doing it. The right way is it efficient? Is it effective? Are you on track with the messaging, etc.? And then the goals tend to take care of themselves.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And if you went, if you went to work with Federer today, could you add some value to him today?
0: Sure. I mean, you always think you can. You know, you always think you can. But also, you know, when we stopped, he's got great coaches around. Severin Luti is still with him. He was there when I was there. He's a tremendous coach. Ivan Lubicic. Um, Ed Berg has helped since I left Tony Roach before me, Jose Higueras. I mean, he has said so many great coaches that, I mean, you always feel like you can help, but there's also comes a time Particularly in an individual coaching relationship where I feel like it runs its course it doesn't mean one person is better or worse or good or bad, it just kind of runs its course where it's good to, for a player to have a fresh voice, even if the philosophy is the same. a fresh voice is a good thing, and so you know after four years that 's what roger that 's what happened with Roger and I and when we decided kind of over a lunch in Dubai, we both kind of knew that this was the time to move on. We actually talked about what a great run it was. And then he, you know, we talked about both of us. He asked me what, you know, what do you think I should do moving forward? What kind of person should be, you know, and he was very open to that and he's still one of my best friends. So you just have to understand the evolution of the relationship and just accept that. And it doesn't, you know, it just runs its course naturally. Some last longer than others and that's fine, but um, fresh voice is always a good thing. And you did achieve your goals. Yeah, we got the goal done and to me, more importantly, the process was a good one and we both kind of enjoyed the journey. So it was a great, a great chapter in my life. I was very lucky to be part of it.
1: Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalogue of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. Let's take it back to an an earlier chapter, maybe what many call the passing of the guard, back in two thousand eleven. Tell me, what was that day like in Wimbledon, Sampras v. Federer, sitting in the players' box?
0: Two thousand and one, right? Two thousand and one. Oh, sorry,
1: two thousand and one.
0: That's okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, it was amazing, you know. I mean, I knew Roger, knew who he was as a player, knew he was extremely talented. And I wasn't sure he was ready yet to do it three out of five sets against someone as great as Pete. And he proved me and a lot of other people wrong. You know, on that day, I saw his immense talent and what he's capable of. I didn't know it would turn into what it's turned into, but as I sat there and watched, I just saw a young man who had, you know, an incredible toolbox of skills and, and, um, it was really amazing. You know, it was bittersweet on that day because I felt terrible for Pete. You know, to lose seven five or six four in the fifth, whatever it was. But it was it was a great moment to see two amazing athletes compete on the world's most uh, storied arena.
1: Had Pete obviously undermined Federer at all? He hadn't prepared enough. Was there any of that going on?
0: No, no, no. I, I think look, we look. I Pete's pretty good about research, and I'm really good about research. So. I felt pretty confident about what needed to be done, um, and it's not like Pete played a bad match, um, so I didn't feel like we missed anything uh, after the match. I always like to go back and kind of relive what what we did in terms of preparation and was the strategy right or wrong. and And on that day, I think he played. You know, he didn't play great tennis, but he didn't play terrible tennis. And uh, Roger won more of the big points. And back in those days, that was a pretty standard uh, operating procedure. If you win the big points on grass, you're going to put yourself in a position to win more often than the other person. And and Roger did a terrific job.
1: Had the court began to slow down at that stage or was it just a couple of years later where it really slowed down?
0: I think it was a couple of years later because um, Pete wasn't really having a problem serving and volleying on it yet. So I think uh, at that stage it was still kind of old school grass tennis. Roger was serving volleying, you know, most of the time Pete was serving volleying all the time. So I don't think it had totally slowed down yet. Um, so I think it was still at that stage where, you know, it was old school grass.
1: I think I heard you mention this before. I can't remember where, where Sampras wanted to figure out Pete, sorry, He wanted to figure out what was going on at Wimbledon. Why had the course gone slow? And he wanted Roger to meet him for a meal and Roger to explain to him what went on. Is that a true story?
0: Yeah, it was. I mean, initially, you know, it started happening when I was coaching. I coached Tim Henman after Pete from two thousand and four to two thousand and seven when Tim retired. And and you know, that was kind of the big from two thousand and two or three on, that's kind of when it started really slowing down. And Pete struggled to understand, you know, what was going on. Why is no one serving and volleying? And so by two thousand and ten when I started coaching Roger, you know, Pete uh, you know Pete and I are still very good friends but we would talk about it a lot and Roger came through LA and so we all had dinner one night and Pete just wanted to ask him all these questions why you know what's going on why why aren't you serving in Bali and why isn't anyone serving Bali what's different now and and so it was a very interesting dinner to say the least and Roger just said it just seems like you know the courts are thicker and slower the balls are a little softer and he- you know uh, perhaps heavier but definitely softer and people are playing from the baseline now because they can move better now uh, on the grass. The grass is better. And because, you know, of the strings and the technology and everything that's gone on, it's easier to return and easier to hit passing shots from positions that you're not in good position on the court than it used to be. So when you combine all those things, the court surfaces, the kind of athletes, the balls, And the technology it makes it more difficult to serve volley, and that you know that was the evolution of the game. That started probably in I don't know two thousand one, two thousand two, and it's been that way ever since. So it was an interesting dinner, and I think Pete felt pretty comfortable hearing, you know, hearing all this from Roger, but he just really didn't understand how all that could happen.
1: Well, that must have been a, a great conversation, a great meal to be at.
0: It was a great meal to be a fly on the wall. I'll tell you that.
1: They probably don't happen enough, those meals.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And do you think the likes of Wimbledon would ever change up the grass, speed it up again, get it more exciting?
0: I don't, I don't know. I think it's a, you know, if you look at the game in general, there is, you know, it's become more homogenized with style of play, you know, and I think that, you know, it's not just Wimbledon. All the fast courts aren't as fast. All the fast balls aren't you know, as fast as they used to be. The slower balls aren't as slow. There's a middle ground for everything. And I actually believe that's one of the reasons, alongside of the bigger reason, which is the immense talent of Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. But that's one of the reasons why they've been so dominant is because there is less volatility in the environments that they play in, in terms of conditions and court speeds. So when there's less adaptation that's necessary in three out of five sets the people that are a little bit better are going to win a lot more often and and that's kind of a a little bit of a summary there are you know these guys are the most talented players arguably that have ever played the game so they're definitely great but there's very few you know big changes in other words you know, Rafa goes into Wimbledon, he can kind of play from the back of the court. If he plays from the baseline, if he plays on the baseline, you can play from the back of the court. And there's not as many, there's a few, there's a couple, Ivo Karlovic, John Isner, Riley, but there's not that many outliers at Wimbledon that you would have to deal with that would be so different. Whereas, you know, Sampras's era, he goes to the French Open where it's slow and heavy, and he's got to deal with Sergi Bruguera yeah. and Muster, the variation was more significant back then than it is now. So I don't think the top players, I don't think any of the players have to adjust as much anymore. And with a lack of variation in conditions and, and court surfaces and the environment, the best players are more likely to dominate. Uh, they, these guys are so great, they would probably dominate anyway, but they are less vulnerable in my opinion. Yeah,
1: It makes the gap bigger and I, it does take away a bit of excitement that you would get with the different change of surfaces and w- whatever else. But can you tell me, Paul, like from working with these great players, uh, as we mentioned, Sampras, uh, Henman, Federer, Sloan Stevens, can you give our listeners an insight in the training of these guys? Like how hard do they train? How much detail goes into their training?
0: Oh look! It you know now it's like everything else. It's so um, detail oriented. You know, in terms of when you do your strength and conditioning, when you do your tennis, how much time you need for recovery, uh, the dietary stuff. It's it's a it's a business, and these guys are professionals. And depending on what's going on in the year, that will tell you how much they work on their tennis, how much they work on their training off court and how much is rest and recovery. And with the great players, they win so much that really their training blocks are very specific. For instance, Roger, you know, would do a big preseason train in December in Dubai, you know, and that, that would push him basically right up until the clay court swing. And then we do another little training block on clay to get used to the sliding and the dynamics on the clay. And then have a quick little training period, which was almost no time to get used to the movement for grass. And then you move right into the summer. So there's kind of there's one big one before the season. And then as the court changes, court surface changes, you kind of piecemeal a couple others together. And then you do another training block, if you can, after Wimbledon to get ready for the big summer heat session in the U.S. on hard courts.
1: I'm more pushing that their focus within a training session compared to, do you find that the top guys could just focus in better, concentrate better, no messing? Yeah,
0: I think, Fabio, I think the difference is they're very specific. They really understand what they need to do and they're able to go out and execute that and feel pretty comfortable um, even in their days where they're not playing well or they're a little tired. They don't they tend to not doubt themselves And that ability pays huge dividends when it comes to being under pressure when you're playing matches because you trust yourself in big moments because you've been through so much. But their focus is much more laser-like. I think they tend to be less reactionary to what happens on a given day, um, and they tend to be kind of more – pragmatic and professional about evaluating what's going on to get them to a certain point.
1: So you could say they really focus on their long-term goals that's always yeah in front of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they've got a great macro picture of what's going on.
1: Well, just going to change subject here a little bit. It's still talking about coaching, but we know now there's so many stats available. They've tennis players have mathematicians working for them or statisticians like Has your job got a lot harder or easier coming from, let's say, 1999 to 2020?
0: Um, I don't know that I would say harder or easier. I I would say different. Uh, Now you have to mix and match all of the different areas, the analytics that you talk about, all the metrics that are used. And, you know, I definitely look at data, um, but I tend to like to drive things with more evaluation on the kind of player and the kind of person someone is the art now to me the art is taking the science and plugging it in so that it makes sense the the challenge is doing that because if you use the science in isolation i don't think it works just like if you use just a bucket of balls and don't use analytics that's not going to maximize what you can do either So the challenge now is the recipe, the ingredients, putting them together. And everybody has a different philosophy about that. And my philosophy is driven by the kind of player you're dealing with and kind of the game style and mental and emotional makeup of a player and then using the numbers to reinforce what you want the player to understand, to do better so that they can continue to improve. So it's a balancing of that. I don't, I really don't feel like it's a harder or easier thing. I just think it's a new environment.
1: You're really getting all that information. As you saying you're judging the player, type player they are, how to react, the information, and you're really using your experience then, putting it all together, and then you're coming out with the answer, the right answers, you hope.
0: Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, that's the goal.
1: That is got Something else that came up a few weeks ago. We had Connor Niall, he's an ex-Irish pro. He was talking about. He said, ultimately, ninety percent of a player win the match. It's down to the player. Ten percent is the coach, and players have to be more responsible and drive the bus themselves. That too many times they blame the coach. Would you, Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah. I think, look, I, I think we're in mean, every relationship's different. Every player coach relationship is different, but look, you know, that's the one thing that I love about tennis is it's about the player. I mean, there's no timeouts. There's no relying on other teammates. There's no, you're basically on center court at Wimbledon naked. You better be able to problem solve. You better find solutions. And And so just as when a player does something great, it's not about the coach. It's about the player. When the player does something not so great, it's not about the coach. It's about the player. And, and the player has to figure out how to use the tools in his toolkit. And that's part of the coaching philosophy, right, Fabio? I mean, my, my coaching philosophy really is how little can I say to get the player to understand what I want them to do? And how well can I prepare them to be independent and solve problems under pressure on the tennis court. That That's kind of what you want to, that's the dynamic you want to set up for the player. Not I want them to be dependent on me, not I want them to look over at me every time they hit a good shot or a bad shot. I, I want them to be able to take a deep breath on pressure and be able to manage the environment. And, and so I think Connor's pretty spot on. I think it takes a team to help. But ultimately when they're on a tennis court, it's about you out there. It's about the player.
1: This is ran nicely into a question. I plan to ask it on core coaching. It seems like you're a big no.
0: Yeah. I'm not a fan of it. I, I, I'm not a fan of it. I, I just think, you know, I think we need to celebrate the individual, the individual aspect of tennis instead of changing it. You know, I understand people's arguments about, Oh, it'll make for better TV or it'll this or that. But I just love that it's about the player. The player, you're out there by yourself. I mean, figure it out. You know, I've been lucky. I get to talk to Roger and Pete and Tim and all these great players about what goes through your mind. What goes through your mind at four? You know, I've asked Pete 20 times, what are you thinking about when you're serving center court at Wimbledon for the Wimbledon title? I mean, how do you – I mean, how – What did he say? They've got to figure that out. Well, he said – no matter how many times it is, you're really nervous. You're really nervous. And I I asked him about three weeks ago, I was watching a rerun of when he broke Emerson's record at Wimbledon in 2000 and he beat Rafter in the finals. And he was down a set and 4-1 in the tiebreak against Rafter in the second set. Somehow he got it back to 6-5 in the tiebreak in the second. Pat hiccuped, mental hiccup. He double faulted and missed an easy passing shot. And that led to his demise. But then at six five, Pete got up in the tie break and he hit a kick serve first. It was heavy, it was a heavy kick serve, it was a kick serve. So I was watching it and I sent him a text and I said, I'm watching this match and I forgot about this serve. Why did you hit this serve? Why didn't you hit a big serve? And he just wrote, you know, he said, he wrote, I was nervous, exclamation point. And that's a guy that had won 13, that guy that had won 12 majors already. So that needs to be celebrated. So if you're a coach that's not coaching someone to be independent. And to think about things under pressure, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that feeling on the court? You look at your coach and what what are they going to do? I mean, that's a huge element of trying to maximize your talent, no matter how good you are. You've got to figure out how to manage that stuff, just like managing a bad day, managing when your serve is off or when you've been fighting with your girlfriend or you lost your passport or you're injured or sick or whatever. You The players have to learn, have the skills to learn how to do that.
1: They have to figure it
0: out. Yeah, it's part of coaching.
1: Uh, Of the players you worked with, are any that stand out that got extremely nervous? Tim Henman, for example, I just feel so. I just would have wished he would have won a Wimbledon. The amount of energy put into it, and
0: yeah, I think they all got equally nervous. But I, I, you know, I just remember, you know, when Pete and I became friends with Tim, when Tim was on tour, I just remember Pete we were at dinner one night and he just said, Man, I'm I'm glad I'm not from the UK. I said, What do you mean? And and he goes, Look at the newspapers. I mean, it is inc- you know, how does how does Henders even play? I mean, it's unbel- you know, he's all over every newspaper for the month leading into the tournament. And then for as soon as it's over, it's a failure. And he goes, how does he? That's that is an unbelievable. You know, Pete said when I'm in the States and I play the U.S. Open, there's a couple articles here and there, and I get on a couple talk shows. But NFL football's going on. It's the end of baseball. So, you know, tennis is not not in the same league in terms of being in a fishbowl as it was for Tim over there. And you know, people have said said to me, you know, what do you think of Tim's career? And I said, I would say he's the model of. Professionalism. If I wanted someone even more so than Pete and Roger, like, what are you talking about? And it's like Tim got to be four in the world. That that was Tim's talent level. He got to Wimbledon semis, I think, four times. That was his talent level. He wasn't quite as good as Pete. Wasn't quite as good as Agassi or the you know the people that were beating him in his era or even Izovich. He wasn't quite that good. He was just below that. So he maximized his talent. And he had an individual goal of winning Wimbledon that heartbreakingly he wasn't able to do, but I think it was a success because he did everything he could possibly do in his power to win that tournament. And it didn't happen. So to me, that's a success. That's what I talked about earlier when I said the process needs to be the main goal, because if the main goal is result oriented, you're setting yourself up to fail. And so Tim set up a lot of really good processes, had a couple of, you know, I think Pete beat him once or twice in the semis. That's not a bad loss. He could have beaten Ivanovic, Ivanovic in 2001 semi, but Ivanovic won the title that year. So that's not a bad... I mean, so, you know, he lost to guys that were great. So I don't see any disastrous thing about that. I think it was a success.
1: He probably can sleep well at night knowing that he did everything yeah. he possibly could to put him in the position to win. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And Fabio, that doesn't mean he doesn't wish he did, did it. Of course no. he does. But I think he realizes he exhausted all his resources to try to figure out how to. Uh, so that's all you can do.
1: Which is amazing. It's great when you hear of somebody being all areas of life who pushed beyond what they could do. And yeah, it didn't win a gold medal, but they pushed beyond their boundaries. And it's just, it's amazing to hear. But what was your, you probably have many best moments in the, in your tennis career, but is there any that, is there any one that particularly stands out?
0: There really, you know, if someone asked me that last week and I, I don't really know. I mean, I, in terms of my coaching career, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't have one. I mean, when Pete broke record, you know, Emerson's record, um, that was a big moment, 2000 Wimbledon, um, when Pete didn't win a title for 25 months, and then came back and won the U.S. Open, ranked 17 in the world, 2002. That was a huge. When everyone's saying you know you should retire, or what are you doing? Blah blah blah. And he won the U.S. Open, 2002. That was huge when Roger accomplished our you know dream of you know our goal of winning Wimbledon and then becoming number one, that was huge. I mean, I, I have so many. And so I, it's hard to, even, and with Tim in 2004, when I was with Tim, he got to the semis of the French and semis of the U.S. Open. And th- those were huge. Yeah, I mean, those were huge moments for him. So I, every, I've got, you know, I probably have 20 and I can't really differentiate that well.
1: Too many of them. Any coach would just take one of them off. You could start selling them.
0: Very lucky man. I'm a lucky man.
1: Uh, just, a f- just a few more questions for you, Paul. How do, how do these guys celebrate, actually? Like when, when when Sampras won that U.S. Open, do they just have a drink, go home, get on to the next tournament? Like Roger, when he won Wimbledon, do they actually enjoy themselves a little bit?
0: Well, the, the, the Wimbledon one, you have the Wimbledon Gala Champions Dinner that night. So you go there and you usually have a nice evening. And then, you know, you, you don't get back until one or two in the morning. A lot of times, you know, I was with Pete for four or five Wimbledon wins. And usually we would go back and just stay up all night and just mostly just chat, sit around the couch in the living room and talk with him and the other guys in the team and just kind of chat and just kind of low key, just appreciate it. And Roger was very similar. You go back to the, with the family afterwards and, so those the celebrations were enjoyable, but they also had a way of muting them because they knew it was a vicious cycle. You got to keep going. There's another U.S. Open six weeks away. So there's a lot of little adjustments you have to make.
1: I could imagine an Irish guy winning any of those tournaments. They go away <laughs> for about six or seven months. <laughs> But uh, I just got to end with one question. You talked, to, you mentioned this at the start about what you learned from all these greats, and including Fritz. Like, what have you learned from each of these that really stand out, and especially off the court? What values have you learned from them?
0: The biggest message that I've gotten that that is, in my opinion, inarguable is the most successful athletes, and I probably I would argue and say the most successful people are people that find their way through adversity and still can figure out how to win. Like Pete Sampras and Federer and Tim, They, when they play average, they still win a lot of matches. And the people that aren't quite as good mentally and emotionally don't win those matches. They lose them because they don't figure out how to problem solve because they get wrapped up. In the fact that they're not playing as well as they would have liked so to be quite honest the cliche is what i've learned is you don't practice unbelievably smart and hard to play perfect you practice and prepare unbelievably smart and hard so that no matter how you play you react perfectly and that's kind of that's kind of it in a nutshell. With great players, the ones that I've been around,
1: they all have that in common. Great, and yeah, that's that's really great. Quick one: Did I see you have a coaching course now? I see you were added to, remember, top level tennis. Is it top core tennis? I see you're on top core tennis.
0: Yeah, it's an affiliation. We did some. I did some work with them uh, with Taylor in March. And I think they're doing a launch now. And I, I don't know exactly what the outroll of their whole program is. I know Brad Gilbert did some stuff and Lindsay was there, Davenport and Taylor, you know, there's a bunch of people that have done a bunch of stuff. I don't know exactly what the outlay of their top court um, program looks like, but uh, yeah, I participated in it and that was a lot of fun.
1: Now, what can people learn from you on the course?
0: Well, I think they can learn about, number one, practicing what your strengths are and understanding how to maximize what you do well. And that's kind of what my overall coaching philosophy is, maximizing what you do well, accepting who you are, how you play, and then figuring out how to get the most out of it.
1: Great. That that sounds exciting. But yeah, thank you very much, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on and hearing the stories. And yeah, thanks for all you do. And I, I know you jump on other shows as well and you put out this great information. And so your time even means more to me. And thank you very much.
0: Fabio. thanks so much and good luck to you. And uh, hope things keep going well for the Functional Tennis Podcast. Enjoy it and uh, stay in touch. And thanks so much for your patience.
1: Whoa, what an episode and what great insights into the greats. Thank you, Paul. Hope you all enjoyed. And thanks for listening. Thanks to our new podcast sponsor, Slinger. And as mentioned earlier, if you know anybody who may be interested in listening about The Greats, please share this episode with them. Until next week, get out there, get busy, get playing tennis. Goodbye.